Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today, Dr. Rhea Berg joins the show for a conversation about household items in ancient Pompeii. Dr. Berg is director at the Finnish Institute in Rome, based in Italy. Her most recent book, in which she co-edited, is entitled Tangible Religion, Materiality of Domestic Cult Practices from Antiquity to Early Modern Era, which was published by the Finnish Institute in Rome. And Dr. Berg joins the show today from Italy. Welcome to the show, Ria. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's nice to participate. Nice to connect with you today, Ria, and, chat, and to chat. Um, so to create enough background and context, Ria, and then we can work our way into the details about household items that were used in ancient Pompeii, can you share what Pompeii was in the ancient period? Well, Pompeii was a lot of things because it's, uh, it was a really lively small town of about 15,000 to 20,000 inhabitants. And so a lot was going on. I mean, it was famously destroyed in, in the uh, eruption of Vesuvius in 79 AD. So that's the day that we know the most of, the day it was sort of frozen in all its activities. But I mean, it used to be before that for some centuries, a very lively um, provincial center where there was production, there was import, export, it was near to the sea, very nice climate. Uh, in the areas around, there were, there were luxurious villas where senators from Rome, uh, elite from Rome also came to spend their summers. And uh, in the town itself, um, numerous houses, shops, workshops, uh, where where the inhabitants were also producing and and consuming these items that I that, that I also studied. Okay, when it comes to a typical uh, dwelling, so so a residential dwelling in Pompeii, can you describe that a bit bit more? If somebody was so that people can visualize what a residential uh, dwelling was in Pompeii in the period that we're speaking about, including um, what the average perhaps number of floors may have been, the approximate size, the, the, the number of rooms, just to, just to create um, the, more of that picture and then we can kind of zo zoom, zoom in on that, on a, on a dwelling a little, little bit more in the conversation. Yes, the Pompeian houses, they have a very wide range. So if there would have been about 1,300, 1,400 uh, architectonic units, most of them were very little and simple. So that a thousand of them were mostly uh, commercial units. So people were living there. There might have been even one room shops or workshops where people, the shopkeeper also was living. So that's the majority. The majority are irregular. They are just, you know, makeshift forms uh, and quite uh, also even poor uh, habitations. 
But then, of course, we have the remaining part that would be about 300, 400 so-called atrium houses and about 50 really, really luxurious ones that uh, as, as their surface go up to even 3,000 square meters. So some of them were really palaces. They, they took up the whole city block. So you would have this uh, uh, very varying conditions of life from one room to even a whole city block. And the elite houses, these atrium houses, they were concentrated on this four court called the atrium that would be very uh, important place for the dominus who was the owner of the house who would represent his, his power, his might, show off his wealth in this space and receive his clients, receive his guests and it was appro appropriately decorated with columns, wall paintings and then behind that there would be opening a series of other rooms, there would be reception rooms, for example, dining rooms of different sizes. So if you were really rich, you would like to have uh, one dining room for like 15 people, other for 10 people, and a smaller one just for uh, three or four people. So you would have this kind of choices where, where to uh, host your party. And then there would also be luxurious gardens on the background, background of the house, uh, on the backside. So it was very, very variable. So there were, and you called the houses that resemble more like palaces. And you said in some cases they take up a block. You call that an atrium house, right? Yes, and there were also houses that had two atriums because, I mean, when you could not make one atrium bigger and bigger, so you could have two of them, and even two gardens. So that's how, for example, in the house of the farm, which is one of the biggest in Pompeii, how it's organized, and it even had a second floor. So it was, it might have been even 4,000 square meters all in all. Okay, and then there was also residential buildings that were multi-purpose in that one aspect was residential and then another aspect served as a shop so it had a commercial function and then there was and then there was residential dwellings that were purely residential in use yes i mean uh, these elite houses uh, could also have shops in front but they were probably run not by the owner of the house of this big house but by his former slaves because in the Roman culture you uh, acquired new slaves and you also give, gave the freedom to the old ones so you had had this kind of uh, supportive crowd of people of your ex-slaves, freedmen, who would also have, have to continue to serve you in, in many ways and uh, very often ran the business that was not thought to be very appropriate for Roman senators and elite members uh, like very concrete commercial work. So these, these shops and elite houses, they coexisted. They are on the same streets. They might have been owned by same people. And so there are no like really elite quarters. 
uh, and commercial quarters, like for example, in perhaps in, in the medieval towns, but in Pompeii it's all mixed. So you have all the levels, all the colors of the society along the same streets. Okay. The different rooms in residential homes or the residential sections of dwellings, did they have uh, did they have a, a, a room that would be, um, for all intents and purposes, act like a, a, a living room? Did they have uh, a, a kitchen? Did they have a, uh, a bathroom? Did they have a bedroom? And what I'm getting at with this question is, is any of those items anachronistic? Well, it, it did not work quite in the same way that the houses that we know that we live in. So, for example, um, bathroom is one thing that is missing, but it seems quite strange. It's the first thing that we, we go looking for in a new apartment. But in the Pompeian house, almost all the rooms were flexible. So they were adapted according to the season. For example, in the summer heat, you would choose the rooms as living room, as sleeping room, that were the coolest, that were shadiest and, and nicest, that had that took the breeze from the sea, for example, in, in here where you have the seaside, the Naples, uh, the Gulf of Naples nearby. And in the winter, you would choose as your living room, as your sleeping room, on the contrary, the ones that were best exposed to, to the sun and uh, best could keep the warmth and be, be warm with these brazers uh, with carbon. But also, yes, the kitchens, they, they were there, but they were sort of out of sight. So first we took the sort of the point of view of the owner of the house, the Dominus, and he was not that much interested in where the kitchen was. It was, it was not on the part of the house that would be uh, visible for the visitors. It was hidden. It was like small, crowded, dark. And that was where the slaves were operating. And they were just supposed to bring on the, the vessels with the food to, to the dining room or all ready and set. Okay. So I'm going to ask questions, not necessarily, I guess in some cases I'll ask questions based on a, on a room. In other cases, I'll ask questions based on a, a function that, that someone will have. And I think we'll be able to kind of weave our way through this this conversation to understand better the household items that were used by Pompeians in this period. So you brought up sleeping, sleeping quarters, um, or, or uh, sleeping in, in, in different rooms um, uh, depending on the season. So what did Pompeians sleep on? Well, Pompeians, uh, Pompeian houses do have these rooms that we call cubiculum, that would be sleeping room. And by this, we mean uh, smaller rooms without windows that had doors, so they could be closed and they, they opened from the atrium or from the garden. And they quite probably were used for sleeping because they sometimes have these uh, recesses for beds uh, in the, uh, against the back wall. And in some cases, we even do have remains of the beds. Um, we have very little traces actually of the furniture because the furniture was made of wood 
and the wood uh, has decomposed. So the only things that we have are the metal parts or, or the metal appliques, attachments um, made in bronze, in iron, the nails, all the nails remain, and uh, even very artistic appliques made, for example, of carved bone. So we have traces of these beds that were very uh, fancily decorated, that were very beautiful, very nice, and we also see them in Pompeian wall paintings. In, in the wall paintings we can see and understand what kind of chairs and beds, tables they had. Uh, even though in the houses, among the finds of the houses, we have to reconstruct all these from small pieces of charcoal and these metal, metal parts, uh, nails and, and other such things. I can't imagine this object would would survive over a couple millennium, millennia, nearly a couple millennia. But is it inferred or known if pillows existed? Yes, actually, well, we do know also from literature that, for example, they even had silk pillows with uh, silk imported from China. So they certainly did have them. And also in many of the wall paintings where you have scenes of banquets, because of course we, we know well that Romans also ate uh, on, on these sofas or on these beds. So that the Roman banquet took place uh, reclining on, on this cleaning or this uh, dining bed. And of course they also had very soft, luxurious cushions that were, were um, that could be striped, that could be all colors. We can see them in, in, in wall paintings. And there are even some traces of the actual cushions, yes. In, in the house of Marcus Lucretius, a, a Finnish project uh, that I was working with, um, studied. In the original 19th century excavations, in the excavation report, um, there was a very accurate description of the original finding of, um, of the dining room couch that used to have silver legs and also remains of cushions are mentioned in the excavation diary. Of course, this is all that remains. We, we no more have these traces, but we have the description in the diaries. Did, um, so, so related to pillows, did, did um, a, a comforter or some kind of blankets, did those, did those exist to keep people warm? Uh, yes, and this is also another category of things that we have almost no traces of. So we, we do have some descriptions in, in literature and we, we can see some uh, blankets, bed covers uh, in, in iconography, in pictures. But in Pompeii, this is one of the suggestions or hypotheses that we can think that because the, the actual storage rooms the rooms that we can understand were used for storage because they, they have um, homes for shelving all over the walls. And they were almost always found completely empty. And the most um, plausible explanation is that everything was, that was stored there was, uh, was organic. So it might have been the pillows, it might have been uh, the blankets, because if the eruption happened there is a little bit discussion whether it happened in August or in October. 
Um, but either way, these heavy winter clothes and blankets would have been stored away for summer. So we should expect actually to have this kind of um, very uh, voluminous stuff that was filling these filling these storage rooms and when when the archaeologists were excavating them they were seemingly empty what would be the uh, a, a typical diet of a pompeian or what would be different types of diets that pompeians would would have what are the what are the main types of food that they would be consuming regularly well, what we know based on the remains that have been found in, in various containers, amphoras, uh, in kettles and in jars, in, in clay jars, and also in, 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 in this kind of um, glass jars that were used for storing food, um, most of it was vegetable. So. In antiquity and also in Pompeii, they consumed a lot of beans, a lot of lentils. So these have been found in many containers in carbonized form. Also nuts, almonds, uh, also different kinds of fruit like pomegranates, prunes, and figs, dates. Um, so these this would have been the basis of of the diet. Also different kinds of vegetables, for example. Um, even in the brothel of Pompeii, there have been remains of the last meal found, and this was onions. Um, and uh, of course, some remains have been found also of the famous fish sauce, the garum, in, in several amphorae. There are these traces of fish uh, bone, scales of fish, that tell us that they once contained uh, this fish sauce that was very salty and was used to spice a little bit of everything. It has been called the ketchup of, of the ancient world. Where did they get their water from? Um, the water came through an aqueduct. I mean, Romans were famous to build aqueducts everywhere even in the provinces, and of course the Roman and the Italian towns were, uh, were well equipped with, um, with this water feature. So there was um, an aqueduct built in the Augustan time, and it led water to the central water tower that distributed water then in um, underground tubes that you can still see in Pompeii if you watch carefully. Uh, every now and then uh, where there are where the street curbstones have been taken off you can see these lead um, tubes passing so they brought water to these pub public fountains that were numerous they were in most busy cro crossroads of the city so that's where the companions fetched their water or rather their servants fetched the water what other type of beverages would have been common in Pompeii? Well, wine was quite a universal beverage in antiquity. Uh, even the servants were drinking like very diluted wine, so that it was even like vinegar, 
more than wine, but um, it, wine was always mixed with water. So in the summer, it was mixed with icy cold water to render it uh, nicer, more cooler as drink. And in, in the winter, they would use boiling water to mix the wine with spices. Um, of course, the qualities of wine were also very hierarchically, sort of there was a pyramid of wines also. So the elite would consume the choicest Greek wines, for example, from particular Greek islands that were esteemed most. And uh, the lower classes would consume mostly or either local wine that was not very appreciated. The Pompeian wine did not have very good reputation, actually. Uh, or then the, the, the Gaulish, Gaulish wines, for example, the ones that came from the area of the modern France were at the time not very appreciated mostly. So there was also this import-export for more expensive and more cheap wines. Did they have the technology to, and I'm using an anach probably an anachronistic term, but you'll know what I what I mean. Did they ha did they have the technology to refrigerate items or to freeze items? Uh, not actually, but they did have technology to preserve ice. So uh, in Italy, of course, you have ice always on the Apennine mountains somewhere. There's always snow and ice. And so it could be conserved uh, to, to the summer. And this was like the most luxurious thing in existence to have ice in the, in the summer, to have really uh, drinks uh, cooled with, ice, with actual ice. But this was something more imperial rather than even in the most expensive, that would happen in the most expensive uh, taverns of Pompeii. But yes, uh, they, they say that even somehow the roots of ice cream could be, could be ancient. And what ice, is it believed that ice would have gotten to, to Pompeii? Well, this I think that has not been, uh, nobody has actually looked at that question might be something to, to look up next, but there are wine coolers, for example. This is something that we can see uh, in, in the wall paintings. There is, a, uh, for example, one banquet scene where you can see a servant pouring wine from an anthra to a container that's in, in the middle of a basin that's, that's probably filled with either ice or ice-cold water. Okay. So it was something that was very very luxurious, so it's something that you would want to show off. So we, we spoke a bit about um, different foods and nutrition and um, beverages. You mentioned earlier that they would eat on, I believe you said they, it, it was common to eat on a, on a bed, for instance. Did they have, um, did any of the homes have uh, a, dining, a dining table, a, a formal area where a family would, would eat? No, actually, dining um, around the table was something that was not at all uh, part of the aristocratic culture. So in the more aristocratic families, you would always dine um, reclining 
but we can see again from the pictorial sources that for example these freed, freed persons freedmen that might have been working in commercial um, commercial businesses as shopkeepers or so forth uh, they sometimes are shown eating also seated so it was something that was of course more uh, utilitarian somehow not not such an activity that would be, represent luxury and also one instance where you would eat around a table with stools around the table was in these taverne in these bars that Pompeii was abounding there were hundreds of of bars where you would have the bar counter just for drinking but in the back room you would have also a table uh, in one particular bar there are also these pictures on the walls that show what the life in in the tavern was like and there you can see actually a client seated on stools around a round table they are drinking they all have these very big chalices of wine in their hands and they are also playing dice on the same table um, so these would have been usual activities around the table sort of in, in the lower lower class um, surroundings did toys exist for for children to play and if so what were common toys yes toys did exist and we, we know that for example there were um, rag dolls but there were also dolls made of bone and ivory that have survived and they even look a little bit like Barbie dolls because they have arms and legs that have small hinges and, and they can move. So this is something that uh, was, uh, was suddenly um, also invested a, much, a lot on in, in richer families. But in poorer families probably it would have been quite uh, simple. So you, the children would have been playing on the street with these large circles or, for example, throwing nuts. There were this um, play with three nuts was very popular. But of course, we have very little remaining of these. But there are also, for example, some miniature animals in Pompeii that might have been used as toys, small uh, human figures, small figurines in the forms of animals, like small dogs and uh, they quite certainly would have been appealing to Pompeian children. You mentioned uh, paintings. I think that was in the context of a tavern was, was the example you were giving. Um, what was the most common artwork that someone would have seen in, in Pompeii? Or, and when I say artwork, I say that, that broadly. So what was the most common uh, pieces of, of art? So I'll make that even more broad, broad sounding as a question. Well, we have to imagine that the Pompeian houses, they were sort of full of pictures and, and full of art, so that not only the walls were completely covered by paintings, but also uh, when, when the owner could afford it, also the pavements had um, images on them, these mosaic centerpieces that were representing very complicated scenes, and even the ceilings were decorated. So you would have pictures everywhere. Um, 
the most common image actually uh, this has been they have been counted of course they have been quite well studied so uh, they were the mythological images as centerpieces of these walls and the most common one was uh, Narcissus the myth of uh, the beautiful youth Narcissus who falls in love with himself so the scene where he uh, is shown uh, looking at his own reflection on a pool of water that's actually the one single most common uh, image on Pompeian walls but also for example the myth of Ariadne left forgotten uh, by Dionysus his fiance, uh, by, by Theseus and found by Dionysus on the Isle of Naxos would have been the, the second most common theme so these were I think things that you could reflect somehow your own experiences or draw moral lessons from that would have been the meaning of showing these myths on the walls those couple motifs that you that you shared that are common for for artwork um have scholars speculated why those those themes seem to have been more more popular in pompeii well, there were also themes that were popular in, in literature, in poetry, so that might also be one of the reasons that people could somehow show their erudition, they could uh, discuss about them. So if you would have your dining room decorated with these mythological scenes, so they would somehow give you uh, subjects for to start with your conversation on the table, and also show how much you knew about the myths that had been discussed, for example, by Ovid, or that had been taken from the Greek mythology. So that's one reason. And the other one is, of course, to, for example, with Narcissus, to somehow warn against this too much narcissism, as it were, too much of um, concentration on, on oneself, and also the divine powers that always um, can can punish if you sort of go over certain limits of behavior. Okay. Did they have, and I think you said the word couch earlier, did they have the concept of couches or like a, or a place where during the day they could, they could rest and, and it not be on a bed? Well, um, the, the modern couch is something that is definitely missing in the ancient record. Of course, you would not have television, so you would need, wouldn't need a couch that goes with it. So when the Romans were relaxing, they most probably were seated on, on chairs, armchairs, and they were also quite distinctive. So in the house, you would have two particular seats for the dominus, so for the master and the mistress, the domina uh, of the house. Uh, they were also pieces of furniture that would have been uh, set up in different rooms according to the situation. So in the morning, when the dominus would receive his clients, it would be in the tabulinum, so that would be on the back of the atrium where he would be seated like a little bit like a divinity or a little bit like a small king or a senator to receive 
his dependents, his former slaves, and in the meanwhile also the domina, the mistress of the house, would reserve, properly receive her clients because also women could possess uh, slaves and they could free them and they also could have uh, relations uh, with, um, with commercial entities, for example, so we could imagine that also the mistress of the house would have her chair that was called cathedra. So that's also where the name of the, the seat of the, of the Pope and the professors of modern universities, the cathedrals, come, come from. And these same um, chairs would have been probably taken in the afternoon to the, to the garden or to a nice cool rooms surrounding the, the garden for more leisurely activities like reading, uh, dictating letters, writing, or even playing. I mean, a lot of a lot of um, items for board games have been found also in in elite houses. So probably these were activities that, that took place on these comfortable chairs uh, in in the afternoon. But yes, then the dining activity in the evening would be set on these three couches that then were set more permanently on in the dining room because they were, of course, a bit heavier. Is there a board game that scholars know appears to be to have been the most popular? And if so, what was that? What was that board game? Well, we unfortunately don't know exactly the rules of any Roman board game, but we do know their names. For example, there is the Ludus Latrum Colorum, that's like the play of the Thebes, and uh, it was some kind of board game that was some, somehow a uh, distant version of uh, not like Czech chess, but it was like an easier version. Um, and many items that are relative to this, these games have been found both in, in the bars and in the in private homes. Uh, they also uh, number dice that are exactly similar to our dice, numbering from one to six. They're made of hard bone. And then these um, gaming counters that are normally made of glass. So quite often you find these groups of um, normally 20 and 20 uh, game, game, gaming counters of different colors. So somehow this number of about 40, 40 gaming counters, half of them black and half of them white, was, was on the basis of, the, of this play, of this game. There's a lot of... Um writings that have survived with Roman history uh, comparative to other civilizations in, in the, the same, same period. Is there any, why, why do you think uh, the, the rules of particular games that were, that were there for entertainment, why do you think n n rules don't, don't survive over the years? Well, I think that they, there probably has been someone who has written a, a book on, on board games because, I mean, in antiquity they were so fond of manuals that they mm -hmm. really had 
them for every occasion, but uh, probably as most of the ancient literature has not survived, this was not seem to seem did not seem to be so vital for the for the monks in in medieval monasteries who were copying these texts. So I think that our uh, manual for these uh, board games have been lost at that phase, unfortunately. Okay. Um, what were the common toiletry items that Pompeians used? Well, Pompeians would have had things that uh, we could quite easily recognize. So they would have had combs carved of bone or mostly evidently of uh, wood because only few survived. They would have had um, mirrors that were quite simple compared to ours because they were only only metal plates, bronze or silver, silver uh, that were very well polished. But they would also have had like tweezers, and the tweezers were also exactly exactly the same uh, than ours, and they are also very very uh, carefully made so that the ones that you use that you, that you find in Pompeii that actually could be still used, they they still uh, are remain flexible and 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 they are quite quite handy actually but uh, the most of the toiletry items would have consisted of bottles and small jars for creams and perfumes um, of course there were those who could afford to have many of them even tens dozens of these glass bottles of different shapes and others only had just one or two or none uh, and also what they contained was very much divided by how much uh, you could spend so the cheaper uh, bottles would contain like um, very very um, homemade uh, ingredients like perfume would be olive oil with uh, rose uh, petals um, whereas in the richest houses, you could have uh, real perfumes imported from Arabia, from uh, Egypt, and even in in the luxurious villa of Oplontis near Pompeii, uh, one container was found out in chemical analysis to contain um, an aroma called patchouli which is a plant that grows only in India. So we have evidence that if you could afford it, you could bring your perfumes directly from the best sources, even, even from India. But for the most part, um, for example, the makeup that's contained in these small bone and glass jars is also made of very simple ingredients. So you would just have um, animal bone uh, that's burnt as charcoal mixed with animal fat. And that would be like very, very simple mascara or pigments, earth pigments that you find commonly in Italy or imported from Sicily. For example, this uh, Sicilian kind of powdery sand was used as, um, as a powder or rouge could be um, used, uh, 
can be made of very simple ingredients that you obtain in the process of making wine, these red agents, or it could be also like very um, expensive um, foreign ingredients like cinnabar, cinnabar red pigment. But we do have this, um, these makeup jars that clearly have, have contained is uh, rouge and red agents to, for the makeup. What's known about the shaving equipment that the pump hands would have used in terms of the, 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 the blade it, itself, the blades, but also if a, some kind of cream existed? Uh, yes, actually, uh, Roman men did not use beard. They did wear beard in the first century uh, AD. So that that fashion only came in the second century. So they, they had to shave and there was one kind of razor blade that was specific, that was used only for this purpose. And several of them have been found in Pompeii. So they would have an ivory handle of a specific form and this wide blade uh, for shaving. Mm. Probably there were also barber shops that would be that would specialize in, in shaving and haircut because it was not that easy also with with these instruments that were um, made of bronze, not not our stainless steel, so they were not that edgy and that cutting. Uh, so you would need a little bit of professional hand to to do this operation, but we have literary descriptions of also Roman men that like to uh, loiter and spend their time on the, in the barber shop and have their daily shave and also exchange some, some gossip and news. Is it believed that women shaved and if they did, did they use different equipment at all? Uh, well, yes, of course, for women, there was the ideal of having uh, the skin that would be very uh, light, smooth, hairless. So they had to find different kinds of ways to remove the unwanted hair. And uh, for that, we also, in literature, we have recipes for different kinds of uh, uh, agents called dropax. That, that would be a hair <clears throat> removing that you apply and strip. Uh, we also know that lamps were used for this, like for burning the hair. And uh, of course the tweezers that I mentioned earlier could be used on smaller areas, but definitely this would have been a very important part of the toilet activities also for women. Okay, I wanna go back to I, the the um, food for a moment. I know we covered it a lot, but earlier. But I want to go back to it to cover off utensils, supplies, what they might have used to cook the food. Can you cover off that part, Ria, on what what the main utensils and supplies and cooking equipment would have been? Yes, uh, many of the Pompeian kitchens have been found really on, on state that were they had been in full activity when the eruption happened. So we uh, we would have there this mason, masonry counter where on top 
there were still remains of carbon and these tripods made of iron on which the kettles were set. In some cases, the, the kettles, pots and pans were suspended on the walls on nails and pegs that looks quite like um, many things that we know from, from like medieval images also. Um, and many of them also contain remains of food. These bigger kettles and boilers and cauldrons would have been used for boiling water that of course was needed also not only for uh, cooking but also for bathing. And um, all, all the sort of specter of different kinds of utensils that we also have in our kitchens, they'd have their corresponding forms in, in the Pompeian kitchen. So you would have uh, different sorts of ladles, you would have funnels, you would have grates, everything that served to prepare a proper meal. So when it comes to storage, Rhea, a storage room or a cellar, if someone was looking at a typical uh, storage room in a Pompeian home, and it might, it might vary based on the type of home, and you can bring that into your response as applicable, what, what would they see? What would be the main things that Pompeians would be storing? Well, that would be quite different, I think, really for us, what we imagine or what we have, like we might have different rooms for clothes or for, for other household items, but actually most of the things are left where we use them. And for me personally, this has been quite a big revelation looking at the Pompeian houses because they tendentially have everything stored away. And why is that? It's because the houses were not as sort of safe as ours, because the bigger houses in particular, you would have a lot of people uh, walking around, coming in, uh, visiting, and also you would have a lot of slaves, servants. And from Roman comedy, for example, we know that there was this um, commonplace um, image of a stealing slave, because I mean, the all, all the objects, they were very expensive and the objects, they were not that many in a house. They might have been 100, they might have been 500 in a, in a richer household, but they were much more valuable than our uh, things are for us. For example, this tweezer or this mirror, they were, they were precious possessions and they could have been stolen by somebody who was walking, walking uh, in and out in the house. So, so you would actually find most of the things in separate rooms that could be locked. Or quite often, they had these big cupboards, big vertical cupboards made of wood in the atrium, lining the atrium walls. And they were also always locked. So this is where you would basically find all the household items, even the vessels that they were using in the evening in the dining room, or the, the, the ink and the pens and the ink wells that they would uh, use for writing the letters in the afternoon. Uh, 
the, the vessels for cooking, even the images of the divinities would be kept either in these storage rooms that were locked or in these cupboards that were locked. And only when you have made a sacrifice to these household divinities, you would take them out and put them in the, on the altar. Or when you would have the dinner party, you would have the slave take out the, the silverware and bring it to the dining room. But it would not be left there. And that's why, for example, the dining rooms are all, almost always completely empty and all the nice stuff we find it in the storage rooms. Okay. In under 60 minutes, Ria, we covered a lot of ground and you did a terrific job with this kind of topic. It's a big, big topic to talk about. And there's, there's a lot of information that we just went over there. So yeah, you, you did a trip. Yeah. Yeah. You did. Yeah. You did a terrific job, Ria. Um, is there in closing, is there, and we could keep talking about this, I, this, this subject, obviously, um, is there, is there something that you feel you really want to get, get across on this, on this subject, uh, that we haven't, haven't covered yet for listeners, or do you think we covered things pretty sufficiently for the given time that we had today? Well, for, for me, for example, I think that the most symbolic objects of Pompeii really are these locks and keys that we find either on the doors of the houses. Sometimes you still have this functioning lock mechanism with the key inserted that somehow tells us in, in one second that the inhabitants were still there. They didn't manage to flee. And also they, it tells us about the care that they had, the appreciation that they had for these objects, even for these simple objects, the care with which they uh, put them in these storage rooms and uh, little boxes, uh, boxes inside of cupboards and these remains of carbonized uh, or organic furniture containers. For me, these with the locks and the keys is somehow a um, very central image in Pompeii. You did a terrific job today, Ria. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode, that is Dr. Berg's most recent book. She's co-editor of Tangible Religion, Materiality of Domestic Cult Practices from Antiquity to Early Modern Era. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Ria and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.